Welcome back, everyone, to TransUnion's next Extra Credit podcast, where we seek to offer insights and not push products. We're excited this month to have Melissa Coity joining us. She is the CEO of FinReg Lab and is with us to talk about a lot of things happening in the policy space, in the innovation space surrounding uh, technology, data, risk decisioning, and all kinds of things. So, Melissa, thank you for joining us. And maybe to start, just um, you know, you and I have known each other for, gosh, call it fifteen years, maybe um, at least. Probably, it's been a minute. Um, you've you've done a lot of things. I think we met just after you left the the Treasury, where you were responsible for consumer regulation. Um, but can you give folks a little bit of of your background? And I think Craig will ask a little bit more about FinReg Lab, FinReg Lab as we start. But uh, you and your your pedigree. Sure, happy to. And I love the fact that I named the company a tongue twister. You're not the only one, Josh. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. It's great to be with both of you, and I really appreciate getting the chance to talk about the work we do, and maybe we'll even talk about the work that we've done with you all a little bit. Um, so FinReg Lab is a uh, Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit research organization, and Josh, I know you know the story, but um, I sat in U.S. government in the Treasury Department at a time when all things technology and data were hitting our radar. And part of my job was to meet with, I mean, I want to say it was hundreds of people, um, but lots of people from the financial sector and the non-financial sector who had very strong opinions about what data or new analytics, new technologies, we're even using the term machine learning back then, but we were talking about virtual currencies, but all of these new technology data-driven solutions or big problems. If you were a consumer advocate, you were worried consumer data privacy was over. If you were on more sort of the crypto side, what we called virtual currency, you might have been advocating to us policymakers, this is going to solve the almost 2 billion people who are financially excluded. And the reality is policymakers and regulators really are sitting with really important questions to answer, but limited resources to turn to for non-advocacy-derived insights. And so I was a part of the Obama administration at the end of his term. I spent the summer shopping the idea of standing up a organization to really get after, empirically get after, some of these questions that I knew we were grappling with while I was sitting in government and I know the regulators and new administration and even folks on the Hill would continue to need some non-advocacy but empirically derived answers to things like how does, you know, a certain type of data work um, in terms of helping to address financial inclusion uh, for people who are invisible in our credit uh, system. Um, and so that's the origin story behind FinRig Lab we set out to be this honest broker and engage with all the different stakeholders, policymakers, regulators, you know, industry actors, banks, non-banks, credit bureaus like you all, data aggregators, and some of these new innovators who are sitting and using some of these data and technology tools. Good. 
Well, we're looking forward to getting into it and unpacking some of that. And uh, Melissa, before we dive in, one of the things we like to do here for for fun is uh, run some trivia by our our guests each time. So that's the I don't think we warned you about that, but um, you were you were in D.C. now, but D.C. is not where you hail from originally, correct? Nope, nope. Where's where's home? Not actually. Uh, well, home is now D.C. because I've been here since '97, and I have raised three sons, three teenage boys now uh, in the in the in the district in the D.M.B. area, as we like to call it. That always sounded a little weird to me, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'd never <laughs> um, heard that. But I, but I hail from Louisville, Kentucky, and lived all over the southeastern United States growing up. So I feel like I've got a feel for some of the parts of the u.s for sure all right no perfect so so given that uh, we have some kentucky trivia here for you to uh <laughs> see how well you remember your your home state so um all in good fun uh so the first question here the official twitter account of louisville louisville based kfc only follows 11 accounts four of the sp- four, and these are multiple choice they follow four of the five spice girls and what a, the leaders of the G7 nation. B, seven guys named Herb. C, the seven members of the band 10,000 Maniacs. Or D, the seven last secretaries of agriculture. Oh, that's a good one. I like the twist. I got to go with Herb. And I think it is. It is Herb. <laughs> it, it is. And, and Josh. Josh. Yeah. Josh, I thought you were going to give her a hint and pronounce it herb. <laughs> no, it's and I guess it's in homage to the those eleven secret spices that are part of the uh, the original recipe, which is quite closely guarded. Uh, second question: Horses are the leading source of farm income in, for Kentucky farmers. Which of the following are not in the top five? A. Wheat. B. Broiler chickens. C. Soybeans. Or D. Tobacco. I would say wheat. Correct. It is wheat. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Good for two. Good. Off to a good start. Uh, so three, which of these people suspected at times of being deep throat hails from the bluegrass state? A, Nixon advisor John Ehrlichman. B, acting FBI director L. Patrick Gray. C, staff assistant Diane Sawyer. Or D, presidential assistant and consultant Pat Buchanan. Diane Sawyer. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Uh, you're doing Kentucky proud here. So last one. Frankfurt is the fourth least populous state capital in the United States. Which of these state capitals is larger than Frankfurt? A, Augusta, Maine. B, Pierre, South Dakota. C, Juneau, Alaska. Or D, Montpelier, Vermont. I think it's A or D. Can I call somebody? You can. Well, Craig's there. Craig, can I call you? Sure. <laughs> I, I'm going to say, look somewhere else. Oh. <laughs> so A, A, Augusta, Maine. B, Pierce, South Dakota. Uh, A is Augusta, Maine. B, Pierce, South Dakota. C, Juneau, Alaska. Or D, Montpelier, Vermont. Meaning, when I, when I say look somewhere else, maybe consider outside of A or D. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going with C. You got it. Got it. Excellent. This might be a first, Craig, for a 100% on the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for playing along, Melissa. I'll I'll turn it over to Craig, I think, for the first question here. 
Yeah. Uh, all right, Melissa. You know, you gave us a great overview of FinRag Lab's origin story and, you know, touched on that it exists to advance the safe and smart use of technology and data and financial services. Can you give us an overview of you know, how you're structured, what your key initiatives are, and then really even getting into what are some of the promising opportunities that your organization is is uh, working on right now? Um, so we are motivated around uh, questions around technology and data and the potential for technology and data to illuminate and uh, banking, generally speaking, is based on risk mitigation, which is based on information, which is based on data. And we do have millions of people, millions of small businesses who really are sort of uh, challenged in terms of being known, right? Um, they may be low income and they may move from one address to another more frequently. And so the traditional means by which you might go about, well, is somebody who they say they are? Well, let's see, do they have sort of a standard address? That really, that kind of friction creates real challenges for people to be able to get into the financial system to begin with. And so information is key. So that's why we are motivated to look at data and then can more sophisticated math with computational power actually even better understand and harness data insights so that we can be prudently, affordably, but profitably serve populations who historically have been excluded. Um, so that's sort of our overarching mission. Um, we didn't expect we were going to spend so much of our time in credit and credit risk assessment. On the other hand, we knew that it was important to spend time there and look at data and tech and the potential inclusion benefits in credit risk because it is such a high return, high reward opportunity, but also such a high risk um, uh, you know, threat for people who have been living economically without assets, without income on the margins. And so um, we do, when, when we are doing research in some other areas, but credit really has been where we've been focused over the past six years. So we, we've done some of the first public-facing research publicly available. And if you look at our very long reports, there's a lot of detail on our empirical analyses, but, but we've evaluated cash flow data and its potential for, um, again, prudently credit risk assessing populations who may be thin file or have no credit history, no traditional uh, bureau data credit history for evaluation. And the research we did found that cash flow insights, and we're talking really the financial insights. We're not talking about where did you shop or what did you buy. We're talking about, you know, do you have a consistent balance in your account over a two, three, four month period of time? We found that those data insights were instructive for credit risk assessing people who, again, are thin file, low file. And I'm assuming your audience knows those terms. Um, we found that those data were helping lenders extend credit to not just consumers, but also small businesses who don't have any credit credit history, credit record at all. 
And we found, and this gets back to the policy, the regulatory, and sometimes the anxiety that industry has, that the data were independently predicting risk. And that's an important component of a disparate impact assessment. And so, you know, that work and then the, the empirical work we did, then the, the deep dive policy, legal and regulatory conversations that we facilitate with the regulator sitting at the table and getting to look, learn and ask questions of industry stakeholders and advocates who are all there at the table, that we think, um, feel pretty confident, help the regulators get to the point where they explicitly issued a statement and a statement together that Prudential Regulators plus the Bureau to say cash flow data as a form of alternative data has financial inclusion benefits for consumers and small businesses. In new industry that we regulate, you should be paying attention to this. So that's the kind of work we do. We we started off by wanting to really interrogate the inclusion benefit of cash flow data. And I should say, it's, you know, we've got somewhere between like, I want to say it's 96 to 98% transaction penetration among often low to moderate income households. So you've got greater coverage, right? That data is just by where, how it's generated, it's more representative. So we looked at the data questions. More recently, we can talk about this or cover it perhaps in another podcast. Um, we've looked at the machine learning analytics and core questions around explainability. And I'll go ahead and just tell your audience what we're doing now at FinRig Lab is actually putting the cash flow data together with the machine learning algorithms to really interrogate, okay, what is helpful and instructive for inclusion? Which, you know, which model techniques, you know, cash flow data by itself or cash flow data combined with bureau data? Um, and then by those different two different model choices, a logit regression or exchange boost, what's generating the most prudent but inclusive outcomes um, when it comes to data and the analytics? So we spend a lot of time on credit these days. Mm -hmm. No, that's uh, very helpful and uh, quite comprehensive. I'm going to uh, switch tacks a little bit in that you're doing some analyses and you're drawing conclusions that can pro can be instructive to financial service providers. Um, however, that is a, gr is a group, and we're part of it, aren't really known for quick movement or risk-taking, um, you know, particularly when you get to the issuers. What do you see as some of the obstacles uh, to wider adoption of cash flow data or even uh, some of the AI uh, applications that you mentioned. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, let me take the first one. And I mean, we've always known this is a, it's a, it's a factor, um, but it feels like it's becoming even more prominent. And it is, it's, it's somewhat the market context reality of who's got the data, who wants to access the data and how smoothly do the data flow or not. Right. Um, and, and that directly relates to, you know, what's covered by existing law and regulation and what specifically, what type of data and where is it not covered? And are there regulatory risks 
And I think that's the overarching answer to your question, whether it's what stymies the, you know, adoption by banks and others of using uh, new types of data, it's the regulatory uncertainty combined with what's, what's the mechanical, what's the plumbing, how does this stuff flow? And then what's the sort of legal policy overlay, right? So cash flow data has come up over the past, I mean, it's been around for a long, long time in small business underwriting. We all know that, but, but in consumer credit, it really has, I think, manifested over the past decade. And it was third-party data aggregators that were facilitating it. And, and it sort of has grown up in this world of consumer permission data and consumer consent. And there are lots of reasons why, you know, stakeholders of different types argue, well, it shouldn't necessarily be covered under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, you know, consumers are permissioning it and, and off we go. But I, I think some of the uncertainty, is it covered or not? Are intermediaries, you know, credit reporting agencies or not? A lot of that, those components of market un uncertainty, I think, contribute to, you know, the challenges around adoption. Now, what is exciting is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is now, kudos to them, in 10 years, but kudos, uh, writing rules uh, around consumer data access. And so I think we're all, to use a very DC word, cautiously optimistic. There are two words that, you know, we're going we're gonna to get a little more certainty around this, the data flow side. Uh, I don't think it surprises either of you, though, does it? No. It, it does. No, but I think it, it underscores the importance of the work you're doing, too. And just if, if that's the impediment, really having something objective to turn to to understand it and, and kind of forcing the issue if, if policy questions are the holdout. Yeah. Thank you. Nice. Way to bring it home, Josh. Yeah. Um, M Melissa, you, you opened the, up the topic of regulation. When we start thinking about the potential of artificial intelligence and, you know, we could, we could name off or list off a bunch of applications that uh, our customers, either in service or underwriting and um, uh, even sales, how AI could be used by them to uh, create value. However, the thing that I think probably gives them pause and gives me pause when thinking about it is, what? how do you think the regulators are going to look, look at the use of AI and where are their hot buttons going to be? You know, maybe an unfair question, but I'd be curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, no, we're thinking about this a lot. Um, so we did this evaluation of machine learning, and what we really wanted to hone in to start are these questions around explainability, because this gets to trustworthiness. It gets to, if you're a bank and you're, you know, using machine learning simple or more complex or multiple levels, like you want to know your models are stable. How do you evaluate that? If you're a regulator, you want to know that the lender is going to be able to explain to the consumer why they get the decision that they got. And you're going to want to be able to assess for, are your models fair? And I, I, I want people to like push back on me a little bit of this, uh, 
where it's where where it should be pushed back on. But I, the more that I look at generative large language models, I mean, I, I, it, it, they're mind blowing, right? I mean, the, the big data. I mean, now we really are talking big data, like real big data, <laughs> kind of the big big data that people talked about for the past decade. But also the complexity of the models. On the other hand, it's fascinating that in financial services and in this very specific use case, we've got laws and regulations that stipulate what regulated entities must do to have confidence and trust the models that they're deploying. The the thing that I'm asking you and your listeners to call me up and push back on, I continue to wonder if this is a helpful template for how we, we as a society think about what is responsible use of AI in other sectors. Now, I can also say it's, I'm really glad we did the explainability analysis that we did because we did find that some of these, they're called post hoc or after the fact techniques for estimating how the model derived its outcome we came up with our own sort of close to ground truth as we could. And then we interrogated seven vendors who provide explainability techniques for machine learning credit underwriting models with the right human oversight expertise. Those post hoc techniques were actually a number of them were quite capable of, you know, landing in the place that we found as ground truth. Um, so that's really exciting. Is that something that we should be thinking about? You know, how do we push and encourage whether it's industry and their own efforts to sort of self-regulate or is it ultimately public policy that, that leads the way? But, but I think, you know, we got to have trust in these things. I mean, my goodness, you know, you've got kids, I've got kids, Josh, you've got your cute dog. Like we don't want them using chat GPT and getting hurt. Do you think they'll regulate the data that's used to train the models? For the longest time, I, I was actually worried that we would end up with a GDPR, uh, a consumer data privacy regime in the U.S. that actually crimped the financial services abilities to access data, data that is more inclusive, because you need that to build models. And I, I, you know, ChatGPT, these things have come on the scene and I'm like, whoa, this data is just blowing, right? And is this really okay? And all of a sudden it is provoking the questions of, well, whose data is it? And is there compensation and is there, you know, consent and, 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 right? I don't know. I, you know, is it the entities who were using the models? I mean, you know, banks, they're looking at the stuff, but not trying it out, but I'm sure they think hard and their lawyers do about, well, what governs us here, right? How do we then sort of reflect what our legal responsibilities are in the deployment of those models and you know should other entities who are deploying it you know is it entity based is it data and then sort of what sits in the middle what are the expectations when you are using the technology to understand if there is bias in your data if there's unfairness in your data what do we mean by unfairness melissa i'm curious that that 
to build on some of that. If if there are areas, I think maybe you just named a couple where where people aren't paying maybe enough attention or doing enough thinking. But but two part question as you as you think about the the range of things that you and FinReg Lab look at, where do you think people aren't paying enough attention? And there are there other things that you say this is just it's kind of overhyped or people are you know, wasting a lot of calories over here on something that's that's not as big as we we think it is. I think um, this isn't something people want to hear, but but I think especially, and they're doing it, but it is necessary for policymakers and regulators to to build the expertise on their teams to understand how this stuff works. I, I just I don't know how you can sufficiently contemplate what's the right level it's got to be something below principles right i mean you know i think about sr 117 right uh the prudential model risk management expectations that the prudential regulators offer that goes beyond principles we're about to put out a report a policy report that you know we've heard a lot from industry they'd like something a little more they'd like something a little more defining now on you know for fair lending assessment some industry stakeholders have said well we'd actually like you to tell us what's the right air metric right what's the sort of uh is 90 percent 85 like i don't know that the regulators are going to go that far but i'm sort of skirting your question a little bit josh i i don't i don't know what's hype or not at this point it, mm-hmm. I think we're still trying to look and learn and interrogate and think about what are the next set of research efforts that we would undertake, but I don't quite know what they are yet at this point. Hey, Melissa, I should have, we should have done this at the beginning, but you've mentioned some of your research for folks who, who want to check that out. One of the things I like is that you, you put everything you do out there or a lot of what you do out there. Can you mention a few of the things that are kind of where to get them and that are available for folks who are listening to this thing that sounds interesting? Absolutely. So if you go simply to finreglab, F-I-N-R-E-G-L-A-B.org, you will find both the empirical research and the reports that we produce, and uh, as well as the policy and market context. We also have, um, some of your listeners may find this useful, we have a FAQ on AI. Now we put this together about a year and a half ago, so it was pre- chat GPT, but, but definitely looking at, we've done some close examination of the different machine learning algorithms that are being used in financial services. So finreglab.org, and you'll find lots of our resources there, as well as resources of other uh, uh, academic papers and others who, who we have partnered with or brought in frequently for some of our own podcasts. Well, thanks, Melissa. I want to zoom out from the U.S. for a second, and you, you and Finreg Lab have been doing some really interesting work in Africa recently. And wondering if you could just give folks a little perspective of what it is that you're doing over there. Yeah, so it's um, it's exciting because there are similarities and differences to the U.S. that are, I think, going to be increasingly rich and and helpful in both uh, jurisdictions to share. Um, in Kenya, we are uh, we have embarked on a research project whereby working with the central bank, we're working with the new government um, 
in Kenya, as well as with the credit ecosystem, to really interrogate questions around what data insights may be particularly helpful for credit risk assessing women-owned small businesses. And by these are very small businesses. Um, the similarities are you've got a lot of different eco, uh, ecosystem stakeholders. You have three main bureaus. TransUnion happens to be one of the three. But then you also have Safaricom, which is you know, this large telco that has been facilitating in an enormously exciting way payment activity for Kenyans across, and not just Kenyans anymore. It's actually spread to other countries and used in other countries. The, the difference is we don't have that kind of telco data, whether it's the payment activities uh, that are facilitated by a telecommunications firm or even the text messages, which are also a component of the of the payments activity that is happening through uh, Safaricom. M-Pesa is the, is the name of the product. And so we are working with the bureaus, with Safaricom, with the regulators to both have a bigger conversation about how data flow and what data flow and what are the intermediaries that exist and what are the needs of potential intermediaries for enabling this kind of rich data information to flow to the full ecosystem. They have digital lenders, they have banks, and then there are loans that are made uh, by Safaricom directly. Uh, at the same time, we are uh, we're having conversations with the banks and with the different data sources because we may end up building a similar research project where we would interrogate loans that are being made with these different types of data to really see if we could understand what data may be especially useful for lending to women-owned small businesses. So if you have any listeners in Kenya uh, who have thoughts or perspective and or your colleagues from TransUnion, uh, who we are talking to quite a bit, um, would love to hear from them. But it's it's quite a it's quite an interesting project. But very similar questions. How do you get the consumer protections right on data flow? You know, who participates in the the data flow system? What are the obligations of the different lenders to report back? How do you know that, you know, borrowers aren't loan stacking? I mean, these are all, frankly, similar questions that we grapple with here in the U.S. with some of the products that have been emerging, like buy now, pay later. Melissa, building on that that question, and and maybe this is unfair in scope, but seeing everything that you've seen and knowing what you know about the U.S. system, and then in some ways a very different but but somewhat similar system in Kenya too. If someone said, "Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna redo this whole thing in the U.S. We're gonna get rid of the the yeah, the way data is reported, the way it's used, the regulatory framework, and just just kind of start over from a." a blank sheet of paper. I'm curious, what would you, what would you preserve from how things work now? And what would you, what would you throw out? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I say this and I mean this, I, we do have one of the most sophisticated credit reporting ecosystems on, in the globe. Right. Um, and that we still, we have good market competition 
We have good market competition around products, I think. We still have big inclusion issues. I mean, even when we looked at Kenya, we're talking about 7 million people. Now, they don't have many, as many people in their country as we do in the U.S., but in the U.S., we've got 50 million U.S. adults, right? Thin or no file. So, I, I mean, I think we've got a good system, but I do think we've got to get more clarity and better pipes around how the data flow. One of the things that I worry about, and I know people won't love this, and we're not an advocacy organization, but the notion that everything is predicated on consumer consent, I think both puts a lot of burden on the consumer to know what it is that they're sharing. And when somebody's in a moment and really, you know, is in need of a credit product, they may consent even if it's not the right thing for them. It also then puts a lot of friction in the system, right, for the data to flow seamlessly. And so I, I think if we can figure that piece out and, and sort of evolve ourselves, and I think this does go to the, you know, the bigger chat GPT, right? I mean, every time I float through Europe or the UK, I am consenting left and right. That data is just going. Um, so, so these matters around sort of data flow, I think is, is a big piece. Um, and it, it is really challenging. Yeah. But I do think we're starting to make headway and I am, I'm, I know the CFPB is trying to figure out how to get this right. Um, with consumer financial data. I think about the same things in, in terms of you hear a lot of voices um, and opinions on on consumer consent and um, yeah. You know, how do you do that without introducing a lot of friction? How do you do that to, to your point? Like anytime you pull up a website out of the out of Europe or, or or overseas, you know, I accept, I accept, I accept right blindly just just to get whatever news article I'm trying to find. Um there has to be a way. Um and I'm you know, it, it's exciting, I think, to think about what that looks like. Um and how how to your point, we bring this in and um and how also this isn't something I think what a lot of the the work on cash flow and alternative data and things has been focused on on thin file no file in the US and I have to think that that the more we can expand that to have it cover everyone right we're able to make better financial decisions both for the lender and the consumer um it kind of sits in that that piece of the population right now because of those friction issues and because of the all the additional burden um how do we make that go away so that those data are more widely um, not available but but easily used and accessible for the um, for the lending community and understood by the consumers as a whole yeah, i think that's right lots of good work to do there is yeah josh you took the words right in our mouth um, no, but in, in all seriousness, Melissa, this has been great. And I, 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 thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And hope to continue the conversation at uh, some point in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks.